Austin, Texas. A few days ago, you texted to the Associated Press and said, I told her to go wherever she wants. And I'll answer the questions directly, honestly, and candidly. That's all I can say. Those are your words. Those are my words. When we first met a week ago today, we agreed that there would be no holes barred, and there would be no conditions on this interview, and that this would be an open field. I think that's best for both of us. I, I agree. <laughs> so here we go. Open field. Now, lots of people assume that the genres are different. So let's just pull out a few genres. We've got westerns. Let's say we've got rom-coms. We've got bromances. Uh, let's say we've got sci-fi. Now, all of those, once you understand the pattern of the 510 plus stage of journey, you will realize that, or you'll be able to look at each of those and realize that the root of all of them is exactly the same. You consider yourself um, a god? My god. <laughs> there is no god. So how can I consider myself a god? God is the greatest lie invented by man. Because man feels so helpless. So afraid of death, so burdened with life's problems, and because he has been raised by a father, by a mother, and those were the beautiful days, no responsibility, no worry. Somebody was taking care of him. That psychological childhood is projected into all the religions. God becomes the father. And there are few religions in which God becomes the mother. It is a simple psychological projection. I stare into the wild, unfiltered eyes of a tiger spawned from hell. The tiger licks his chapped, scabby lips, and says unto me, Where is your god now? You coward. You cock. I run screaming into the woods in search of my guru. But can your mommy really ever be your guru? Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you authority needing. Clothe me, feed me, and bathe me, Screedlers. This is Staff Only, the podcast studio manager, who's ready to turn their life around today, who is ready to become a better version of themselves, who is ready to dance like Elon Musk is watching while peeking out from behind one of those lamp posts from that Chris Burden sculpture in Los Angeles. Well, I am. On this week's episode, we've got the multi-talented Ross Mimi. He's a writer, a musician, a visual artist, and actually an interviewer himself. If you haven't purchased a copy of his new novel, The Book of Formation, what the ass menagerie are you waiting for? It's beautiful. It's contemporary. And it fucks. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 68 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear. <laughs> I don't know if the microphone is picking this up, but there's a child upstairs who's screaming, who sounds like Daffy Duck, and uh, I hope it's picking it up. I I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Um, if you missed it, late last week, we unlocked another episode of the DSA podcast starring Darcy Wilder, Ezekwe Muhammad, and yours truly. It is the podcast within the podcast where we get together and talk nonsense for an hour or so. You can get the whole archive of those by subscribing to Humor in the Abject on Drip at just five bucks a month. 
what do you think of the background music for this intro? It's very tasteful, if you ask me. Anyways, a quick item of business. This Friday, June 22nd, come on out to Amosino Gallery on the first floor of 56 Bogart in Bushwick for Into the Weeds. It's a night of performance curated by Ari Richter. I'm performing alongside some great people like Lorelai Ramirez, Allison Brainerd, Stephen Marco, Jude Dry, and Rachel Dry. It's going to kick off at 7 p.m., and it's free. This week on the podcast, I've got Ross Simonini. Recently, Ross sent me a copy of his new novel, The Book of Formation, which was published by Melville House and Random House. I devoured it in a couple of days' time, and we get into the nuts and bolts of that book on the episode here. You might recognize Ross as the interviews editor from Believer, or from his numerous contributions to publications like Interview, Art in America, McSweeney's, The LA Times, Bomb, Freeze, The Stranger, The Paris Review, Book Forum, and like 300 other magazines. He's also a visual artist, and he's shown his work at Martos Gallery and Shoot the Lobster, 24-7, 365, Printed Matter, Jack Hanley, a whole bunch of other venues. He's part of the musical project New Villager. Uh, the sounds of that are going to be taking us out at the end of the episode. He's also the executive producer of the Organist podcast, and he splits his time between Northern California and New York City. How does he do it all? Well, let's find out. Here's my conversation with Ross Simonini. Okay, cool. Uh, Ross Simonini, welcome to Humor in the Abject. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so frequently I've read in biographical blurbs about you that you are living between Northern California and New York City. You're bi-coastal. Mm-hmm. How does that work? I always, I've never gotten to ask somebody before. Uh, I see that a lot. The artist is bi-coastal. Yeah, it's, um, it's working slowly <laughs> out. Uh, I kind of find excuses to be in one place or another at the moment. So right now I'm here for a minute. Uh, for, you are. You're right here. I'm, I'm here in Ridgewood. Uh, is this Ridgewood? Is that where Bushwick, we're technically. We're, technically we're very close. If you walk okay. about three blocks, okay. you cross the border into Queens. Right. Yes. Very close. So uh, here I am on the border. And I'm here just for a handful of things. I'll, I'll set up a few meetings and such but uh in the fall i'll I'll be here for the entire semester teaching okay at uh, columbia at columbia yeah yeah Yeah. what do you teach there it's uh it's undecided uh what i'd call it but it's in the school of the arts and they're usually experimental seminars that i invent so this one is called sound and narrative and it's dealing with um everything from music to um, podcasts like mm-hmm. this to, um, to what I call oral literature or literature without writing, hmm. which is, uh, the idea of arriving at text, uh, without writing it, but speaking it. Okay. So, uh, it could be transcribed, um, conversations. It could be someone speaking, a um, audio journal aloud. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, request that students never write, but they'll only speak aloud and record it and then transcribe for assignments. Okay. So, um, like I've just been reading this new, uh, this, uh, the audio journals of, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name, I'm sure, but David Vonarowicz. Okay. I think that's how you say his name. And well, I'm uh, not familiar, so I won't, Oh yeah, I won't be able to correct you. He was, um, <laughs> yeah, he was around in the, um, a couple decades ago. And he recorded all his journals uh, on a little recorder. And then now, years later, they've been transcribed. But it's really interesting to read them because uh, they have such a different flow than anything that would be written or anything that would be. And um, so the class will include all of that. Um, And right now, actually, that's that's sort of the main reason I'm having for coming back and forth is, is, uh, is Columbia. But then I also have family here. And I lived here for about eight years, so it's only recent that I've been spending more time in, in Northern California, okay. where I, where I also have family. So um, the balance has has been shifting to, yeah, yeah. to out there. I live about um, hour north or so of San Francisco. Okay, 
It's in um, essentially like redwood forest. I, was, I have a question here literally that says, do you fuck with the redwood forest? Oh my God, I fuck <laughs> with the redwood forest. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I would turn my computer, but I would risk unplugging something. But I, I, yeah, the next question I in my flow. <laughs> it's, uh, I took some friends from New York. Because basically I drag my friends from New York out to the redwood forest all the time. Uh, we have a second home on the property. Because if you live outside of New York, you can rent properties that have two homes on them yeah. for very cheap. <laughs> and we can just, we just have sort of an informal residency where wow. we just have friends stay for months at a time. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just after moving from New York, we're just, you know, feeling like we're making it rain in dollars, yeah. you know, all the time. So that's incredible. I drove when I was moving from. Arizona to Oregon it's a very long time ago but I remember driving up um I took the five because I was trying to uh that's the central highway right yeah California the five the, the less the less scenic one yeah. yeah I took that just to make better time but um I think I was really fatigued but there was this one moment where I I you know I don't know exactly where I was somewhere around like Redding or maybe north of there or something but all of a sudden just when it changed to Redwood Forest and it was this like surge of and I was like oh my god I'm almost to like well, that is the Northwest. You yeah. Know, it's not technically Oregon or whatever, but yeah. this huge change. And I just remember being in that. It was the first time I'd ever been in the Redwood Forest. And I was just like thrown for a loop. I mean, yeah. I hadn't really seen anything like that before. So I think a lot of people, like I said, the people I bring will just feel the same way. They, it's, um, especially New York people, New York people. Yeah. Like, they're like, what the fuck is this? And you're like, yeah, this, <laughs> this yeah. exists. <laughs> I mean, the trees are, some of them are, you know, older than 1500 years, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. So uh, ends. Yeah. <laughs> it just like it, it, it's, a, it's such a different, uh, object to have towering over you than a skyscraper. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think people forget the biodiversity of the United States. Yeah. I mean, besides like, I guess in cinnamon and stuff like that, but really to go or to go to the Sonoran desert or something yeah. and see saguaro mm-hmm. cacti mm-hmm. and you're just like, what the holy shit, yeah. these things are incredible. Yeah. yeah. And they're old. There's, um, this Japanese concept called forest bathing forest bathing yeah okay lay it on me and and (laughs) the idea is um simply just going to the forest and spending some time there that's forest bathing but i think the idea is that it's it's almost a spa-like experience Mm -hmm. maybe you know healing on some level that you go and walk through the forest and the intense levels of oxygen uh you know just bathe you yeah yeah and it really does feel like that to a degree you know like you go in and I'll be sleepy or I'll be foggy and take a walk through the forest. And, and I think just the oxygen levels alone sure. will rejuvenate you. But it's also being in this place where you have mottled light coming through the trees yeah, yeah. and the temperature is always kind of perfect. It's, yeah. it's, it's, if it's very hot outside, it's, it's yeah, you're you in know, a temperate. Yeah. yeah. And if it's hot, cold out, it's about the same. You're kind of feels warm and the ground is soft like you're like squishing through the world in a pleasant way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a God. Yeah. Living here is, um, it's difficult to remember that that's a, that that's a possible reality that can exist simultaneously. Yeah. It's very hard to uh, imagine anything outside of, uh, the hustle and bustle of what's going on here. Um, so you, you're usually, um, I guess in your, in your history, kind of on the other side of, uh, of the microphone, uh, you interview people yeah. a lot and you are the, are you the editor for interviews at the believer or yeah. have been, yeah. I have been, yeah. Um, and I'm just, I'm curious if it's, is it weird for you to be asked questions instead of sort of delivering? It's a different kind of thinking, right? It's yeah, certainly different. Um, does it feel cash? Are you like, cash. I didn't have to prepare anything. I, it does. Out. It does. Like <laughs> my mind kept going, you know, on the way here. What am uh, I supposed to bring? Yeah. What, what, what preparation am I forgetting? <laughs> but I've done enough times now with, um, for, you know, art or, or writing yeah. that, uh, that I'm comfortable with it. Uh, and I do tend to think of conversations and I bet you do too. The, the way you're conducting them is more like a conversation than an interview. Yeah. So in that sense, it's not so black and white interviewer interviewee. Um, I like, I like to open it up so that it feels loose and so that that uh, distinction isn't sort of looming over the conversation as, as if I'm some authority figure or like an interrogation or something. Yeah. 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 I get that's, that's an interesting way to put it. I guess it makes sense that it's uh it seems more like, I guess 
I don't know if I put this in a language before, but I think of the act of interviewing because it's not something that I have done for a super long time, but I think of it more like an intentional conversation. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, we're, we're having a conversation, but we understand that it's for a purpose and it's like for an archive mm-hmm. as opposed to like, I'm going to ask you a, B and C and expect these answers kind yeah. of things or something like that. Um, and you've interviewed a lot of different people. Yeah. Um, are there any particular like extra weird ones that, I mean, you don't have to you know throw anybody under the bus, but is, have there been anything you felt like you had to wrangle or were particularly interesting? You know, I prefer those interviews. Yeah. I seek out people who I, I think are difficult or stubborn or resist the interview. I think they're far more interesting than people who will just like willingly give you their, you know, spiel, their you know, a lot of people have this, um, sort of press release in their brain where they just are waiting for the moment to dump that upon you. And And that very quickly interviewing people who had like, uh, not so recently, but somewhat recently graduated from art school. Um, they got this very, a very polished, yeah. Kind of response to questions. Yeah. Well, you did a, you did one that I read, um, that I think was in believer. It was, a. And you know what? I've never said his last name out loud, so you, you tell me the right way to say it. Right. Um, Harmony Corrine? Uh, Corrine? Uh, Corrine. Would Corrine. Be, yeah. See, that's what I thought, and yeah. then I've heard people that I think are smarter than me say it mm-hmm. differently, so I'm parroting them, but Harmony Corrine. And you said something in the beginning of it that was basically like, you know, you kind of don't know when he's just making shit up and yeah. when he's telling the truth, but that's part of the fun yeah. and kind of part of the mythology of it, which I liked because it gave a little primer for the interview where he's talking about these weird... Um, growing up tap dancing with these two juvenile delinquents or something the yeah. whole time I'm just like I don't really care if this is real it, you know? it, that is though <laughs> that is real. it's okay. called curb dancing of course and he's, <laughs> he's made uh, he's made uh, several short films about curb okay. dancing and uh, the funny thing about him is that the things that seem the most preposterous are actually they kind of yeah tend to be the real ones. Uh, fiction, yeah, yeah. Me, yeah. <laughs> really uh, but he, yeah, he's a classic example of someone who just uh, I don't know if you've ever seen his Letterman interviews. Oh did... no, but I've had them. You know what? They've been suggested to me in the sidebar mm-hmm. because YouTube knows what I like. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's saying, "Sean, next time, give in." Yeah, we're reading your email. Yeah. This is all connected to your Gmail account. Mm-hmm. Like we know you're going to join. Me. <laughs> you read my Believer interview, and then they knew that you liked. Harmony Korean. Probably. So it, yeah. I, which is strange. So since it was a, Well, it was a linkable PDF from your website. I didn't even go, oh, I don't shit. think, to the believer to Damn. read. That's the weird thing. You know, I've been getting these targeted Instagram ads for things that I'm buying in cash at the grocery store around the corner. I believe it. Isn't that weird? You know, they, I mean, I know, the, I know the mic thing and I know they the have like, mic. They I have know the all mic. that, but I'm not saying out loud what I'm buying. It's mm. really strange. Mm. It could be completely coincidental, but it's also... I don't think so. It's been freaking me the fuck out. Yeah. I'm kind of losing it. No, we're living in Pandora. Now, <laughs> you know, everything's just being suggested to us every second. And uh, that's where we're headed. We're headed just... Our, our partners are going to be suggested to us, our, voca- yeah. our vocations. <laughs> we're going to have no free will. Um, a little while ago, you and I were both participants in... Uh, friend of the podcast uh brian blott's show mm-hmm. at performa uh people pie pool which mm-hmm. is a it's terrifying to say that on a microphone with all the peas but people pie pool and uh you you did something pretty weird for it which was uh you were directing a, a choir yeah. arrangement of children is yeah. that right can you because i was uh i was in the front end of the show and yeah. then we had to go back and be backstage so i heard about this and i think i saw an instagram video but i never got to see All probably right. the other 90% of the show yeah. in person so what was the how did you hired children what happened <laughs> how did i hire children um or book children book uh well i have a musical project that uh is anonymous and um a few friends know about it and I've been in non-anonymous projects before, but uh, bands and things. But this one's anonymous, and I sent it to Brian just for fun, so he could insult me about it, probably. <laughs> and uh, and he really liked this track that I had, which was written for a choir. Okay. And originally, I had gone to a local community choir where I live, and had them record.
and he wanted to do it with children. So, um, of course he did. This yeah. Jam. Yeah. He likes yeah, the kids. kids doing weird shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so we, we got a children's choir, which, um, actually we ended up having to combine two choirs to make it work. And we placed them in the audience kind of surreptitiously. Nobody knew what was going on. And toward the end of the show, uh, after the lights had dimmed, I stood up in front of the choir and, um, and turned around and then they all stood up and I conducted them singing this, this little song <laughs> and uh, it's sort of a gospel hymn uh-huh. kind of a song about failing. Okay. And, uh, it was definitely, I think he liked the image of, of children singing about yeah. failure, Yeah. <laughs> but, but the, the track is all about, uh, about the series of failures we all experience in life. So yeah, it was, um, I actually worked with him on the last performa as well, or maybe performa 15. Mm-hmm. And we did another choir where I conducted, uh, a whole room of people who it was in the, um, you know, the post office in Manhattan, um, the big post office is right by the library, huge hmm. towering post office. Don't know if I've been to that one. Is it just like, it's like the main Manhattan branch or yeah, something? Okay. It looks like a ancient, impressive okay. building. Anyway, half of that thing is empty Whoa. and they did performer there one year and had like a gala dinner. And so all of the, you know, donors, um, patrons were sitting on this long table and, uh, I conducted a choir of Brian and, and many other people um, demanding food from mm-hmm. the from the uh, from the the patrons who uh, yeah they we weren't getting fed was the point yeah. as a part of this performance. Oh, Talk to me about this. Yeah, and so know. we uh, we decided just to you know point at our mouths and make you know nonsensical sounds and <laughs> demand food for an hour. He loves that stuff. He brought me a. Um like a couple thumb drives of just insane things that he had found over the years of different recordings and things like that. Yeah. Gave me a carte blanche to use them. However I saw fit and I have used some of them. And then some of them, he's just like, you don't want it. You won't want to show anybody that you have this. And it's just like, there was one that was very funny. It was a couple fellows. Uh, I mean, I don't really sound kind of like long Island guys, um, doing their stand up bits to each other. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think that these guys had necessarily performed these anywhere, but recording and practicing. And it was, the subject matter and the angle was kind of what you would assume yeah. it was. It was pretty like painful, wasn't it? But he found it like a thrift store. And he I was like, "What a so much of that? Who donates a tape to? Th- I mean, throw it away." Yeah. <laughs> um, His archives upon archives of sounds that, and sounds and you know videos and everything. Yeah, he's yeah. just uh, the most um, thorough archivist I've ever met. Yeah. Amateur archivist. Yeah. Uh, one of your, and this is, I'm not blowing up your spot here, right? The non, one of your non anonymous musical projects is new villager. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So I was listening to some of that and then I saw, um, somewhere uh, maybe on the website for the group, um, that, uh, it is based on the concept of a monomyth. Mm -hmm. Um, can you tell me about that? What does that mean? Is that, I mean, I could probably hazard a guess. Is it sort of the architecture of mythologies that repeat or am I, am I, what is it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the monomyth, you know, what that is, the Joseph Campbell um, idea about mythology being common across many cultures. Have Mm -hmm. you ever seen this? Uh, It sounds vaguely familiar, but if I say a hard yes, then I'm going to be held accountable if I'm wrong. But that does kind of ring a bell. Okay. So it's, um, it, it bears a lot of similarities to the three act structure in film. Uh-huh. And it's, it's this idea that monomyth actually as a term comes from, um, Finnegan's wake. It was one of his invented words, which, um, Joseph Campbell was a scholar. His first book was about, uh, Finnegan's wake. Very interesting book I where he just goes word by word, dissecting <laughs> like syllabically, like what each, each phrase, each word, each Whoa. syllable means in the context of, the book and history of humanity mm-hmm. anyway so his later books mostly deal with mythology and one of his central concepts is this idea of the monomyth where he analyzed mythology from every culture or many cultures 
and saw a pattern of storytelling that included a, a series of moments, you know, um, and a, a certain hero. And, you know, at a certain moment, the hero has to um, experience uh, some sort of trial. And it comes through the trial and then they're transformed towards the end of it. There's much more to it. And there's, um, you can kind of take it as deep as you'd like to take mm-hmm. it. So we were thinking about that a lot at the time of uh, writing the album. And we were writing what I think you could call pop music. Um, people have called it psychedelic R&B. Uh, but, but rather than approach the pop songs from the typical AB, AB structure, we wanted to come up with some other, other framework for it. And so we thought maybe this kind of storytelling yeah. structure would be a nice way to come up with lyrics and to approach the structure of songs. And there's a visual element to the to the group, and um, the videos uh, were usually edited using the monomyth as a as a basic structure. Um, a lot of the costumes we did some installations. Um, like with Jack Hanley's gallery. Yeah, because you guys performed in a lot of art contexts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so we would we would basically use the monomyth as as a, a fundamental kind of lens to look at everything we did and it just created a kind of cohesion for everything. Yeah. So that everything connected and no matter what we did, there was a, a through line and a way of um seeing it as part of this project. Yeah. It's kind of like boiling the boiling the idea of the concept album down to like song structure mm-hmm. instead of kind of following that. And is the, this is sounding more familiar. Is it kind of like the, I mean, I've heard people do, I guess, sort of in an, uh, an interpretation of this monomyth idea, which is basically like there, there are like two or three kinds of stories that happen and it's like a person goes through this. Yeah. Go, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's the idea um, that, yeah, there are only a few stories that we tell. Sure. They have different actors, they have different settings, but it's yeah. the, the vibe or yeah. the, the kind of the narrative uh, drive mm-hmm. is similar. Yeah. I think someone said uh, once that there are only two stories. One is that a person comes to town <laughs> or a stranger comes to town mm-hmm. And the other one is that someone goes on a journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's could, what I'm thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, but even even within those, he would say that you could. Campbell would say that you could see them as essentially the same story. Yeah. And that if you look at, you know, a, a myth from Micronesia, and you look at a myth from Africa, you're going to see parallels. And and essentially, it's it's really kind of just a picture of the human brain and how we think yeah and it's a way of um understanding how we how we process life you know and and uh and time and all of all of these ideas that seem so big we kind of collapse them into a story and uh and that's like a common across all humans yeah it's kind of it's a more poetic way to look at the thing that like conspiracy theory um youtube videos always try to do which is Mm -hmm. just be like you think the jesus story is original bitch and then they show you they're like here's where it happened first and then over (laughs) just beating it yeah it's like it's like a pagan story that's just been recycled that made me think about this so if there's the you know the stranger comes to town or the stranger goes on a journey or something that uh do you remember did you ever see that meme that was about this is a while ago, but it was that um, the end of Breaking Bad was um, that the guy in Breaking Bad goes into witness protection, um, and that's the beginning of Malcolm in the Middle. And that's sort of like, <laughs> so then sort of like the guy goes on the journey and then comes to town. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, so you, yeah, you you make visual art, as you said. You are a writer. You play music. You do all this stuff. But you have a do you have a degree in astrophysics? Uh, I studied. Or you that studied astrophysics. Yeah. So, um, God, does that? Do you use that? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, you know, in, <laughs> maybe tangent. Maybe uh, in this uh, monomyth sense, in that uh-huh. I, I can see, uh, you know, the patterns, and uh, but not really. No, okay. I mean, I, I'm just. It was. Um, I guess there are two ideas of school. You know, one is a vocational yeah. project, and the other is like a inquiry. Inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I studied some things for inquiry and, and then I also studied music, which I've gone on to use, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't really, just at that moment, it was something that I wanted to study a lot. That's pretty cool. But I had no 
interest in being an engineer yeah. or, uh, you know, <laughs> building bombs or anything like that. Well, that's good. I'm yeah. glad. Um, a little while back, you were kind enough to send me uh, a copy of your new novel, which it's your first novel? First, yeah. Yeah, so the Book of Formation, and um, it's a, a cult of personality type of story about this kind of uh, burgeoning guru who's coming of age under another guru, like a television self-help personality, but a little um, a little more new agey, a little more kind of spiritual than mm-hmm. like Oprah or something like that. Not yeah. that... I certainly think there's a spirituality to kind of Oprah's vibe, but this is a little more like, Very much, yeah. this is a little more like I'm going into a shop in Sedona kind of vibe. Um, and so what prompted you to develop, uh, the story? Like, you know, we discussed that you're an interviewer and the book takes the form of a series of interviews between this, um, I guess, reporter, um, who's not named ever. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. Yeah. So this, this kind of anonymous reporter, but is, um, I, it's not really a protagonist antagonist structure, but is interviewing this character, Masha, yeah. um, who's sort of growing into this guru. Um, so obviously you have a background in interviewing, but are you, are you a self-help junkie or where did the, what kind of brought the forms together? Well, it's interesting you bring up Oprah because she was very important to the way I thought about the book. I think, uh, we live in a pretty post religious moment in, in a lot of at least in terms of our, you know, uh, the liberal, you yeah. know, arts culture that we run in. And and yet something has to replace that if it's like a human need. Um, and I think that we're in a moment where someone like Oprah can kind of rise in power and show us all these spiritual philosophies and systems of thought and people can really see her as a kind of religious figurehead in a way that, um, that I don't think would have been possible many years ago. And, um, and I think it's interesting that we're sort of, uh, just in, in, in a time where there are so many options and, and yet people tend to feel not religious despite most people we know probably participating in yoga, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously a religious activity, but people have sort of scrubbed the religion away from things and, and instead are trying to find um, ways of, of like circumnavigating religious thoughts so um like the the secret was something that oprah released into the world or helped release into the world and you know this is not religious thinking but i think it it touches upon that same thing that people are looking for in religion and uh that was exciting to me that that it's it we're in an open moment where you can ask questions you can look at um look at a lot of these systems of thought that are available to us and pick and choose. And, um, I think that's pretty fascinating because it's, it's kind of unprecedented in human history. Yeah. She's a figure that we, like you said, wouldn't have made sense decades and decades and yeah. decades ago, but also, um, as far as like her ascension to kind of like pop cultural relevance is, uh, is there, was there anybody, is there anybody that there's even really a comparison to? I mean, she's kind of in between movie star Mm-hmm. news anchor priest Inter- interviewer too right interviewer yeah, yeah all these i mean she embodies this thing that kind of no one had ever done before mm-hmm. and and yeah it's very much like uh um there's a i i'm not saying this to be um judgmental of the people of oprah but there's sort of a worship element to it that mm-hmm. um i say that with sincerity that yeah. there's this kind of like this person who's this matriarch who's kind of like leading a flock of people and has all these things. And I generally feel like her intentions are pure. I mean, she seems pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. Never met Oprah, but I got no beef with Oprah. Yeah. Um, nor do I. I, I, yeah, I think she she's remarkable. a funny space that yeah. kind of fills this thing between pop star and priest. Mm-hmm. Um, huh? Yeah. So, so seeing that figure to me was pretty uh, inspiring uh-huh. for what, power could be in this moment and uh and that it is uh also you know she's a woman and that is also you know and she's a black woman and that's i mean this is 
we often forget, you know, that, that she has risen to a certain place that is just, and she's done so in a very unusual way, like you're saying. And by, um, I think focusing on a, on a handful of things, but two that are really interesting to me, literature and the spirituality side of things. And she's been a huge force in our culture for those things. I mean, I think everybody's probably been affected to her by her on some level. Totally. And it's funny too, because she's kind of, um, it's Oprah is her, her fame is inexplicable in a way only because there's nothing really to compare it to Mm -hmm. because she's so self-made, but it's much more kind of, uh, it happens so much more, not, not that she wasn't very driven and calculated, but it's a much more organic kind of ascension to this sort of cultural relevance than, you know, now we're always saying, well, that person's just famous for being famous. Right. And like Oprah's famous for myriad reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but she's kind of, yeah, it's like a, if you think about time in that sense between when there was like a religious devotional figure and then Oprah's kind of in the middle to then like Kardashians or something, mm-hmm. she is this kind of turning point from uh, religion to kind of like secular spirituality to just, um, you know, I mean, I don't really care. I don't have any problem with the Kardashians either, but yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a very different change. Yeah. And I think that was an undercurrent in the book that was kind of interesting was it didn't, uh, it didn't seem like it was um, overtly critical of anybody who participates in these kind of systems. Um, and the, it's not, yeah. and the interviewer maybe goes in a little skeptical at the beginning, but there's this growth throughout the book where it's uh, a very interesting dynamic mm-hmm. in the way that the, the interviewer is kind of staging the things and asking the questions yeah. um, and how much Kool-Aid is being drunk. Sort of no pun intended. <laughs> Or I guess it is a pun in general. That's what it literally means. <laughs> it's what it's related to. <laughs> the um, the cynicism that I think could easily dominate a subject like that yeah. is something I really tried to keep at a distance from the book because I, I'm, and you know, still people will read it that way. You know, yeah. it says a lot about, I think the reader. Well, they, bring, you're allowed it. to project a lot into it. I yeah. Think. yeah. It, it's left pretty open. But I in no way wanted to, I wanted to, um, a hundred percent believe in the philosophies in the book and a hundred percent reject them. Yeah. And I think, um, that's the, the situation with a lot of these, uh, systems of thought is that they're very seductive and that's what humans do is we build systems mm-hmm. of belief and thought and we buy into them and then they create trouble and then we reject them and then other people believe in them and we fight against them and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, I really wanted to just approach it as a cultural phenomenon, as a, as a system of thought that, um, kind of like the monomyth, you know, in that it's just a, a repeating pattern yeah. that humans just like to set up little worlds, little paradigms that they can, you know, and they can create narratives. And sometimes the monomyth is part of that. Yeah. It's very seductive because it, I mean, the, um, for anybody who hasn't read the book who's listening, the, the central component is kind of this idea of, of P right. Which mm-hmm. is sort of like, um, lowercase P I imagine it is kind of like persona energy or just kind of like how you shape who you are, your identity, and that yeah. can change radically. And these people go through uh, these these radical transformations that are called turns in the book, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a very seductive, you know, to kind of think this idea of reinventing oneself and all of this kind of um, want to... I mean, there's an optimism to it, but also, like you said, there's a push and a pull because at the same time that, you know, I read something like that and I can certainly see myself being seduced by something like that, I'm also like... Well, I'm not naive enough to like have that kind to really think that I could change, you know? So mm-hmm. there's a, yeah, it's a, there's a nice rub in there. And I think because it's pretty much all dialogue based and there's not uh scene setting text so much or like directional or these kinds of things like that, that it's sort of like the way that we misread tone in emails. Mm-hmm. Like you can project onto the interviewer or Masha who's being interviewed um, tone. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I, I think I read it and I was like, oh, this is clear. They're dynamic. But somebody else could have an entirely different read of the book, I mm-hmm. think, just based on their relationship to maybe that type of thinking or something, you know. And Masha has a particular singular kind of dialect yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. isn't really of this world. So that it, it... <laughs> this is, you know, who I kept 
I mean, I don't know. Do people do people tell people that? I feel like maybe it's rude to tell people this, but who they imagined in the book. Please tell me. Okay. So I'm like, you know, I'm in the theater of the mind as I'm reading this book. The entire book, as soon as, so it begins with um, Masha's kind of like an adolescent. Uh, as Masha gets older, it takes place over the course of years. Um, as Masha was older, I kept, I could not help but imagine uh, Adam Driver. You know who that is? Sure. Yeah. Like, okay. The actor. Yeah. For some reason, I just had the, like sort of the like, the like haircut, and all. I just imagined hmm. that it was Adam Driver the entire time, which was, I don't know why I thought that, but that's who I conjured in my head. I am working on a screenplay adaptation of it right now, so uh, <laughs> maybe we'll end up casting him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that because I didn't. I don't always picture people in books in that way or, or assign them to somebody. But for some reason, just the description of the character immediately, I was just like, oh, that's Adam Driver. And I don't really have a, I don't really have an opinion on Adam Driver. I haven't really seen much. It saw some of the show Girls. Mm -hmm. I saw some weird movie that he was in with Ben Stiller and mm -hmm. Amanda Seyfried where they yeah, like eat uh, ayahuasca or something at mm -hmm. some point, like a, a middle-aged... Uh, meltdown kind of story but yeah that's my whole explosion for some reason that person was in there the whole hmm. time <laughs> well not now all your listeners will have that too they'll yeah. have that experience if they ever read the book oh well sorry um skip delete this from your mind <laughs> imagine that you didn't hear this um and so this uh this decision to write it in primarily this interview format obviously has a relationship to one of your skills which is interviewing people but it's kind of like a it's a big risk to take uh, especially in a first novel right but i mean you know my uh armchair opinion is i think it paid off i thought it was a really engaging book um and i read an interview actually where you were interviewed for believer um catherine hill i think it was a transcription from a talk which is just a sort of kind of funny like yeah. roundabout all these things coming around but so you're being interviewed and you said that um it owes uh, part of its form to your fascination with dialogue literature, especially mm -hmm. Greek philosophy. Um, so what's dialogue literature? What is, is that, is that related to this idea that for your class that you're doing too, or it's a little connected to what I talked about. Um, I've taught classes about, uh, this kind of oral literature where it's, it's, um, the, the idea again, that, that, that you're arriving at text by speaking rather than, by writing and I like that because I feel like there are two different kinds of language there's spoken language and there's written language and they're pretty distinct yeah. we, we don't write phrases um that we speak we don't write the word um even right. though we'll say it constantly or any number of other little modifiers and, and things that we interject in our in our speech uh, we don't, the phrasing is different, the, um, you know, the syntax, the everything. So it, it, it really is its own little language and I love it. And I think I even love reading it, you know, transcriptions of it. Um, and I think that um, we don't talk about it in the same way as we talk about literature. We think that somehow something that's written is more elevated. Sure. Yeah. And we think that something that is spoken is, 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 um, you know, um, not art mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, for the most part. And I think that that, uh, is totally arbitrary. And I think that spoken language is sometimes, a, you know, more interesting, more artful. Um, there's a lot to mine. I, I think there's, you know, one in one in the classes, I'll, I talk a lot about words like, um, and, and how they have a meaning, you know, like has a meaning, uh, like has, has a meaning, then they have uses and they're not, it's not just, um, people are using it for a reason. And if you see it on a page, it conveys something different about the phrase than if that, that yeah. little interjection weren't there. So all these things, I really like thinking about them. And yeah, there's a whole history of literature or even like non-literature, like, um, transcriptions from uh police interrogations sure yeah or um you know uh sessions of of therapy or hypnotherapy that people record and i think these things are, are fascinating to read and they're to me just as much literature as a short story and uh and i really like you know looking outside of the canon to find you know inspiration and actually a lot of the um a lot of 
the inspiration i hate that word i don't know what i'm using it uh prompt prompt, uh for the book information came out of you know art interviews and the there's a history of books of art interviews and there's one in particular the one with um david sylvester interviewing francis bacon over a series of um 20 years and uh, i'm no you know bacon head or bacon scholar but uh but i read this book when i was younger and much younger and he interviews him over a period of time like um yeah it is it's 25 years or something so you see a, a development or change in his personality yeah over this period of, of interviews and um and so i've ended up doing that a lot in my life interviewing people multiple times and you know you see people contradict themselves you see them change um, or evolve their opinions or refine their opinions, uh, or, you know, totally dismiss themselves. And, uh, I think that's exciting to interview people yeah. multiple times. And, and so the book is, 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 um, really getting at, at that, at the way that an interview, especially multiple interviews over 20 years is a kind of way of capturing someone's personality. Yeah. I mean the same on the, um, on the side of the interviewer too mm-hmm. in the book, which is kind of fascinating. It was, it was funny. I was, I can't remember who, um, I was talking to recently, uh, but I was talking about your book and I said, you know, this, uh, this guy Ross, um, he sent me this book and it's the whole thing is told through like the sort of the window of this interviewer and i was like is he trying to get me a complex about like talking to people but it was it's very funny because it's uh um i'm sure that that was you know one reason that i really enjoyed the book is because it was so much about this person trying to like use that form to to get at something Mm -hmm. but also very revealing about the person who was interviewing Mm -hmm. and as somebody who does this and then listens back repeatedly to my own voice i know all the ticks that i do Mm -hmm. i know all the weird things that i say or stuff that um, in the same way that written language is very different than dialogue, um, the sort of interview format causes a different thing. Like I don't tell people that I'm curious about something in person, but I say it constantly when I'm interviewing somebody, which is a weird mm-hmm. kind of mind fuck. But I thought that that was, uh, one of the more interesting things in the book was that all of a sudden the, usually it's <clears throat> this person's questions are in italics and they're, they're short and they're this thing versus this kind of growth over time where all of a sudden the subject conducting the interview became just as much a part of it. And that was, um, you know, I don't know. There's a, there's a way that really good interviewers, I guess they kind of disappear, right? Like I feel like Terry Gross kind of disappears a little bit, not in a bad way, but in sort of like a, a way where she's almost like just sort of stroking a conversation along. But I think that we could all talk about who Terry Gross is based on uh-huh. however many interviews yeah, we've listened yeah. to her. And the kinds of questions you ask and, yeah, you know, this is, it's pretty telling. Like the, the, sure. th- the things you're deciding to ask me now are telling about what, what you've chosen yeah. to be interested in or, or the way you ask them or the way you phrase a question, what you respond to, what you don't respond to. Um, but it's a, it's a little more, it's a little more invisible. It's, it is like something you have to sort of read between the lines yeah. to see, but and speaking of invisible, somebody told me recently that Terry Gross does not interview people in the room with them. That's true. Yeah. She's in a booth in Philly. Yeah. And even if they're in the studio in Philly, she doesn't sit in the room with them. Yeah. That's pretty wild. I guess it would allow her to focus more on the sound yeah. and the, the way that someone's coming at something <laughs> yeah. through sound, which, uh, <laughs> which obviously that's all we're hearing, you know? So yeah. like whatever eye contact we're making right yeah, now, yeah. nobody listening is hearing that. Right. Yeah. So we're just like, you know, we should probably just close our eyes and we'll get a more accurate representation. It's like it. talking on the phone. Yeah. You know, it's very weird. Um, yeah. I've, I've interviewed some people over like Skype or the phone before. It's really, it's radic. Obviously it's mm-hmm. radically different to talk to somebody on the phone where you can't see them because it's a really different type of conversation construction that's going on than yeah. if you're like looking at somebody and they're gesturing to stuff or you're reading body language. Um, that's very funny. Um, now the, you did a, you, you write for all these different places, but you wrote a piece for freeze a little bit ago that mm-hmm. was about, uh, the Netflix documentary wild, wild country. Um, did you, as you were writing the book of formation, did you have any idea that this like thing was, I mean, Cults have been back for a minute, mm-hmm. let's be honest, and not that 
Masha or not that that's a cult scenario, but this kind of this thing's on the tip of the tongue, but it really kind of researched back. And it was funny because when you sent me the book, I was also, I think, probably watching that show mm-hmm. that had just come out. Did, was was that on your radar or did these things just kind of happen simultaneously? Because I thought I also thought it was very tasteful that you wrote a review of the show and didn't mention that you had recently written a book about a guru because I was like, he's going to bring it up. Like, yeah. But you didn't. Well, I think they reached out to me about that review in particular yeah. because I'd written the book. Yeah, well, and, I figured yeah. this much. I mean, there was like a... Because it wasn't, I didn't come up with the idea of of reviewing it, but um, yeah, I think I've I've become a little bit of uh, (laughs) the go-to cult guy. Um, (laughs) Not that I've ever been a part of a cult, so I'm I'm really just uh, making it all up. But uh, but yeah, that show. um, No, it was surprised to me too. You know, it wasn't. uh, I didn't know about. I knew Osho, and I knew um, a little about his philosophy, but I didn't know about that whole Rajneesh yeah experience yeah in, in Oregon it was a pretty wild thing um and I assume I mean I'm guessing many people who've listened to this probably have already seen this show or yeah. something but it's basically about Osho or um what is his full name Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh yeah. yeah and he starts Rajneesh Purim and rural Oregon and all these things but yeah one of the lesser kind of explored uh cult scenarios but mm-hmm. they were all they in my brain they all happened in the same like 15 year period or 20 year period or they something did, like yeah. that and and there's something going on there, but now there's this like, I mean, I wonder what, there's a real cultural nostalgia for cults yeah. and I'm just as guilty as the next person. Like I remember when I saw, uh, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, mm-hmm. like that movie. And I remember immediately after just being like, Oh, I joined a cult in two seconds. <laughs> like, absolutely. Yeah. I would love to. Um, looks like fun. looks like fun. You know, I, and I wonder, I, I was thinking about this as I was you know, this relates too to what you're saying about this kind of this secularism that's happening, this loss of um, kind of religion in everyday life. And I wonder if uh, not only that, but also the kind of the rugged individualism required in a gig economy or something like that makes, in a way, very attractive the idea of kind of a fascistic um, person making all my decisions for me but providing me with um my basic overhead like mm-hmm. food and shelter mm-hmm. and i just have to do a little on the farm or something yeah. there's something about that that seems like as much as i'm narcissistic and individualistic the idea of being able to succumb to something greater than me which is probably the attraction of religion for a yeah. lot of people um maybe that's what i don't know it seems seductive but i guess also very scary I mean, I tried, I tried to think about that in the piece, why we're in a moment where, yeah. where this is coming up a lot. Mm. And it's not just, I mean, for me, like I wrote that book over seven years, you know, so it came out now as a lot of these things are, have been coming out. But, um, but clearly recently people have been thinking about this topic and, and we're kind of on that 20 year, whatever, yeah, 25 loop, year loop. Yeah. So I, I, I can see that too. I, you know, I don't think I have the personality for it. I've been to a couple <laughs> residency kind of commune, yeah. uh, casual residency things where it, re- it's not a cult certainly, but there is somebody who is more or less in charge yeah. and there are things that everybody has to do together, maybe eat a communal dinner. Mm-hmm. And it only takes a few days before I just realize that that I can't, it's not for you. I am, uh, but I do think, you know, our culture is like, you know, pretty low on, on community. Yeah. Uh, and people are itching for it yeah. any way they can get it. So, uh, and it's low on, on, I mean, maybe it's not low on religion. I shouldn't say that. Cause obviously I think there's a kind of, I feel like we're simultaneously like at a peak of religious thinking and, sure. and kind of a, a valley of it and two, two it's, different parallel cultures in it our, it seems like it's a, it's a, it's a political posture it is, more yeah. than a spiritual kind of, I mean, it's a partisan thing. Yeah. And it's an argument for a particular set of kind of systemic ethics that marginalize people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, so it seems that, yeah, it doesn't seem as much like a, uh, there's no, I don't really see anything spiritual in much of it. Yeah. That's not to say that everybody's religious isn't spiritual, but for the most part, it's, it seems like basically like a, a bargaining chip in a kind of like, uh, in an attempt to sort of ingratiate a certain politics against people's self-interests yeah. by creating like an, an identifier there that it's like, well, I mean, yeah. you're fucking me, but you also, 
you don't like the gays and I don't care much for them. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of being folded into identity politics. It's literally identity. Yeah. Uh, as a, the, the uproar that's going on right now. Yeah. And I guess it's, Hmm. That's funny too. Yeah. The cycle, the cycle of the cult thing. I, you know, I didn't, I, and I felt like, uh, I saw this ad for, they did one, I, I've yet to see it, and I, I can't believe I haven't, because I'm kind of a junkie for this type of stuff, but they did a Waco one, mm-hmm. and it's Taylor Kitsch, you know, I mean, it's Tim Riggins from Friday Night Lights, he, he was in True Detective Season 2, I mean, this is like, I saw a preview like for, I saw a preview for it, and I was like, is this like, you know how when people were saying that House of Cards happened because Netflix looked at viewing algorithm, or it was algorithmically decided based on like people's viewing tastes. They were like people who like uh, people like British shows and U.S. adaptations of British shows. They like uh, the West Wing. They like political shows and they love things with Kevin Spacey. And so uh, you know, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> He's done. But so that kind of thing. But yeah, when I saw the thing for the Waco um, miniseries, I was like, "Am I? What? What?" This is like extremely my shit, but, and weirdly like two months before I even knew that that was coming out, I had arbitrarily checked out, uh, ashes of Waco, this book by a, a journalist in Texas who had kind of written more, I wouldn't say hyper sympathetic of the branch Davidians, but a, a little more like leveled, like the United States government fucked these people kind of thing. Um, but yeah, just like I had a pang for it or something and I don't know what was going on. I was like, I gotta read this book for no reason. I just read it and then that thing came out and I thought, yeah, I'm not very original. Obviously this isn't, you know, this is <laughs> being sold back to me. Um, but I don't know. I guess we're, I think it's also an, an aesthetic thing too, right? Like we, yeah. there is, it's the cycle, not just about cults, but it's about the seventies in general mm-hmm. and that moment. And it relates to our political moment. It relates to the kind of, fashion that people are interested in relates to the music you know all of these things so i think it's all it's all part of a a package that we're interested in exploring yeah i mean the weird thing is too to look back on those things the 70s and the 90s look the same to me now like in the 90s i remember looking at things from the 70s and just being like wow how dated but now if i see like you know if, if it's home video from the 90s or something like that i don't except for people's extreme like of the time fashions everything looks the exact same to me I mean, it's only a 20 year gap, but the kind of like wire glasses, the kind of like Mm. men with bangs and a little bit of a mullet and like the weird and stuff. It seems like those times are collapsed much closer. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a little bit of the 80s in both, I guess, Mm -hmm. which I hadn't realized before. Um, And I guess this is uh, maybe this is an appropriate time to ask about this is a you wrote this like 10 years ago, but I just I saw it on your website and it was from like 2008 from the New York Times. But it was about um, this thing that was happening in comedy at the time, in uh, situational comedies on network television, that was really kind of weird and now is just sort of um, how we understand comedies are written. And you called it, uh, is it digressive comedy, I believe? And so this idea of, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's basically like what I've heard people refer to frequently as like the cutaway on Family Guy. Like, oh, remember that time that the blah, blah, blah or something? And then it time, space time tears and this mm-hmm. other thing happens instead of the regular network sitcom. Um, very much kind of like you compared it to Lost, which I thought was like very funny because I love that show and it hasn't been on a long time. But um, when did you first start noticing that trend? And would you, is it just par for the course now? I mean, it seems like that yeah. that model of, of comedy is very much like it doesn't just exist in the in the four rooms with the X amount of individuals or something. Yeah. Um, I think the article centered on 30 Rock, yeah. which was yeah. maybe one of the, at the peak of it. Um, and it started earlier, I think, with The Simpsons definitely introduced it. Because you mentioned animation allowed yeah. this. It happen. allowed it. Yeah, yeah, I think because you could do anything yeah. and you could cut to you know, anywhere without having costs. Fly a crew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> get filming rights. Yeah. And so you could, and then eventually live action started bringing that in. Um, but the article really starts, starts that idea with, um, you know, a lot of the literature from the seventies and sixties where it would, it would allow a, a, a narrative to become totally fractured mm-hmm. and it would allow you know, somebody to like Thomas Pynchon would suddenly interject a 12 page 
history of a light bulb yeah, in the room, yeah. right? And, and gravity's rainbow and, or, um, and this kind of ability to do it in literature is the same as animation. You could do whatever you want without any cost repercussions. So, uh, I kind of started at that point and then, yeah, now I, I think it's just how we think, how we expect, you know, any narrative to be thrown at us. And, uh, I guess you could make lots of parallels to how we think in general these days, you know, and, and how I'd certainly, how I think that, you know, it's, it's not linear. It's just a series of, uh, tumbling down the stairs, uh, scenes <laughs> of, of, uh, digressions. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, you know, it's, uh, one thing segues into another thing and then, uh, you know, it's non sequiturs and it's, yeah, that's yeah. just, and you use the, um, you also mentioned, cause at the time, uh, and this is before it came back, but arrested development had, you know, was this under, well, you know, uh, darling critically and with cult circles and things like that, but what just didn't do the numbers that it needed, but was a show that was entirely predicated on this idea of like, none of the writing had anything to do with like, uh, a punchline dialogue. It was like in jokes that would create this weird thing that wouldn't the joke wouldn't land or you wouldn't even know that it had been a joke for four or five more episodes mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, which is kind of, it's funny cause we get so jaded on that stuff that it's like really easy to make, um, like a snide remark around how clever like arrested development is or something like, Oh, it's so clever or something. But it was pretty wild when that was happening. I mean, I remember like the, the Easter eggs that they were leaving and, and watching it later on like DVD and being like, Oh, Oh my God. You know, it was kind of amazing. And yeah. I guess we take for granted too. Now the new, not even new. I mean, it's been around for a while, but the thing now, I guess in comedy, in addition to those, um, digressive elements is the, there's no fourth wall, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the, you look at the camera yeah, and that just is, and, and if a sitcom doesn't do that now, it feels dated. Mm-hmm. Like if they don't know that they're being filmed, which I mean, there's, I don't know. That's some like penop. There's probably some subconscious panopticon shit going on there where we just sort of are like, well, they know that we're watching them because mm-hmm. I'm being loud. <laughs> well, yeah. Once that that wall's <laughs> broken enough, it's broken kind of forever, yeah. right? Like, well, it's not even explained. That's the weirdest thing I think now is that it's it's very. There's a theater to it that wasn't there before. In that that veneer between audience and performer is effectively gone without any rational explanation for why are these people looking at the camera or why is there a fucking documentary crew following these people around yeah you know like i don't house of cards definitely did that yeah yeah claire or he'd look at the camera and be like well i was raised as a boy my daddy always said and then he would like pound the table or whatever that's great that's a good really good impression thank you ross yeah, i enjoyed I, that well what you got anything coming up that we should keep an eye out for I mean, um, people should, people should order and get the book of formation. Yeah, for Very sure. Good. I highly recommend it. For sure. Um, I am working towards some, uh, exhibitions of art. Cool. Uh, that I don't, I'm not allowed to say where they are, That's fine. but you know, just look out for them. Just yeah, keep yeah. a general eye out on the internet and yes. cultural scene. Yes. Right? Yes. And, uh, follow Ross on Instagram if you want to, I'm sure you'll post something on there maybe once. Yeah. I'll once. Do once, <laughs> once more. I'll do it. Keep a, keep an eye out on that. Um, well, Ross, thanks for coming by. I know that you're very busy while you're here in New York before yeah. you go back home, but not so busy. <laughs> um, thanks a lot. Thank you for sending me the book. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, and everybody, like I said, pick up a copy you you won't be disappointed if you are you can come and fight me and we'll talk about it but uh ross thank you so much thank you i hope you enjoy the rest of your trip and to all of you listening we'll catch you next week Okay, it's over now. We are taking turns this time.